We come to the next to last of the messages in the book of Judges, where we're looking at how people did what was right in their own eyes and see the consequences of it. We're in Judges chapter 20 today, and the theme that you want to capture this morning is that the sin of a few can lead to the suffering of many. God alone keeps this world from spinning out of control. The sin of a few can lead to the suffering of many. God alone keeps this world from spinning out of control. This morning I want to introduce you to two fellows. The fellow on the left is in his 50s. He's one of the richest men at the time in all of Europe. Uh, The man on the right is a 19-year-old peasant. And those two men meeting changed your world. You are a different person than you would have been had these two men not met. The man on the left, his life changed dramatically uh, toward uh, his uh, adulthood. He, He was actually just a ordinary aristocrat until his cousin committed suicide, which put him in line to one of the great thrones of Europe. And then his father goes and dies of typhoid, which means now he is the next in line. Um, The guy on the left, or on the right, he is a group of, and there's some debate about this, of six or seven assassins who have committed to destroying this empire, at least the portion of it where they're residing. They're disgusted with the government and they want to take care of getting rid of whatever they see as a person in authority, which the guy on the left is. And they make this incredibly complicated plan that involves smuggling weapons. And it's like a, a mystery novel where they're smuggling things on a train and then they're afraid that then, so they have to dump the poison and a bomb out the window of the train. And all this stuff is really just quite amazingly elaborate, the plans of these assassins. As it turns out, the guy on the left and his wife are going to be going through a town And the process, uh, the procession is actually announced, the schedule is announced in the newspaper, (laughs) the route that they're going to be traveling and all of this. And so, uh, the motorcade, uh, as it is announced, puts these assassins into a game plan whereby they're going to try to kill the guy on the left. Um, (laughs) It's kind, of a, it's kind of a comedy of errors. The motorcade goes by and the first assassin has, has a bomb, but he chickens out. After all these months and months of preparation, right at the moment of truth, he doesn't toss the bomb. The, the second assassin on the route, um, he also fails to act, and he's got both a pistol and a bomb, and he chickens out. There's a third guy, yet a little farther on the route, and he's got a bomb, and he tosses the bomb, 
onto the car of the guy on the left here, but the bomb hits the folded convertible part of the back of the car. It bounces off the back and rolls under the car behind and blows up, injuring 16 to 20 people. This particular guy that tossed the bomb, he swallows his cyanide pill, but since it's old cyanide, he just starts vomiting. <laughs> he threw himself into the river, but it's the summer, and the river is only five inches deep. <laughs> and so, he gets captured. The, um, they get to a town hall where there's this supposed reception that the guy on the left is supposed to speak at, and the mayor starts speaking, and this guy's mad because He's had his motorcade bombed, and he tells the mayor, Mayor, I came here on a visit, and I'm greeted with bombs. It's outrageous. But his wife kind of calms him down and says, let the mayor finish his speech. And then the guy on the left is going to give his speech, but he has to wait for his, the papers of his speech because it was in the car that got bombed. And so they hand him his speech, and it's covered wet with blood from the bombing. Um, so, the whole plan is broken uh, of the motorcade, the, where they're going to go next. The, the guy on the left says, you know, we should, instead of going on with the procedure here, with the procession, we should go back and go to the hospital to visit the people that were injured in the bombing. So, they decide to make their way backward and the people in charge of security said, we're going to go a different route because we need to be, make sure we're safe. The only problem was the people in charge of determining the route did not tell any of the drivers that they were going to go on a different route. So they head back and the drivers all go the way that they thought they were supposed to go and they turn the corner, and the general who was in the car with the guy on the left, as they turn the corner, said, wait a minute, we're going the way that we were planning to go, but we should change the plan, stop, turn around and go back. The driver stops the car, whereupon the car stalls. It's right at that moment that the guy on the right, the 19-year-old kid, had been sitting there thinking, our whole plan is broken and we won't ever get the guy. And he's sitting right where this car stops and stalls. And he steps up onto the running board of the car and he shoots the guy on the left and his wife, killing them. Here's a little bit of the route here. They go the first and two places where the bombs happen, the guy jumps in the river, they make their way to the number three where they do the town hall, they track back, and at number four they turn right onto this road right where Gavrilo Princeps is sitting and he kills Archduke Ferdinand and his wife Sophie. As a result of this assassination, the world is launched into World War I. Seventy million military personnel take part. 
eight and a half million combatants die. There are 13 million civilian deaths as a direct result of the war. There are resulting genocides from all over the region that include, oh, three million people dying in a Syrian, Armenian, Greek, Kurd, Iraqi, Assyrian, Russian, Jewish uh, um, genocides. As a result of the world weary and weakened, there is an amazing, right on the heels of this war, a pandemic that makes COVID look like a Sunday school picnic. Uh, we don't even know how many people died of the Spanish flu. Uh, upwards of 20 to 50 million people, maybe 100 million people died of the Spanish flu. Your world is completely different as a result of Gavrilo Princeps meeting Archduke Ferdinand on that late June day in 1914. The sin of a few can lead to the suffering of many. Let's look at verses 1 through 7 of Judges chapter 21, where we're going to be seeing just how the sin that had happened in chapter 20 plays itself out in the suffering of many. Uh, you may remember that in Judges chapter 20, we had this Levite and his concubine, and then they meet up in this town of Gibeah, and they have the abuse of the concubine who is killed, and then the Levite does a grotesque way of trying to announce that this horror had taken place, and now he wants justice. And we see in chapter 20 just how the sin of a few leads to the suffering of many. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? We'll look at verses 1 through 7, and then we'll make our way through the text as we go. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mitzpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mitzpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her through all the country of the inheritance of Israel, for they have committed abomination and outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And at that very inopportune moment, I'll ask you to take a seat. In verses 1 and 2, the tribes, even from those across the Jordan in the north, come together near Gibeah at Mitzpah. And what's fascinating is that all the way through the book of Judges, there had never been any such thing as a unification of the tribes about any enemy in Israel. And yet at this thing, there is this emphasis of unity. They come as one man from Dan to Beersheba, chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel. 
It's a sense of unity, but it is, oddly enough, a unity about disunity. (laughs) It's a massive meeting. It includes the chiefs of the people, of the tribes. It's a formal gathering of a sort as they present themselves in the assembly of the people of God, and it appears there's 400,000 foot soldiers here. Let me give you a little bit of a description of this. So they meet, uh, they gather from Dan to Beersheba, which is a phrase that came to mean from all across Israel. So Dan way up here in the north to Beersheba way in the south, and it even included the people over across the Jordan in, in Gilead. And they all meet in this one little central spot in the middle, where in this little circle in the middle are all the places that are mentioned here in this text, Bethel, um, Mitzpah. Gibeah, all those places are in this little tiny circle in the middle. Here's a close-up of that. You can see that there's Gibeah is down here. Mitzpah, where Israel gathers, is here. And by the way, right here at Mitzpah is the one place up in the Judean hills where you can have enough of an airport to land an airplane. So if you're ever interested in seeing something flat up there, you go, ah, I must be near Mitzpah. It's a plain of sorts where you can gather. And then a little farther north, uh, these are all about six or seven miles apart, you have Bethel, which will factor in our story as a place in where God is consulted. And then this one right here is where they flee. Uh, There's going to be a war, and people are going to run away, and they're trying to get away, and there's only certain ways you can go uh, out this direction, and this is one of them, and there's 600 guys that hole up there at this place called Ramon. Um, verse 3, Benjamin hears that this is happening, which is a sign that they'll prepare to oppose the measure. And there is then a trial of sorts to determine the facts. The people ask, how did this evil happen? That this woman was violated to the point where she was killed, and this Levite is so outraged that he sends this odd signal to us all of the, of the evil. And the Levite now speaks, and notice that as he talks, it's completely an attempt to make himself look good and everybody else look bad, which is pretty common in court, isn't it? In court, you always try to make yourself look good and everybody else looks bad. Uh, here's some of the ways in which he tries to look, make himself look good. Um, He had actually sacrificed his concubine to save himself, hadn't he? I mean, he was the one who shoved her out the door. Now he's saying, look what happened. These guys did this, you know. Um, There's no other witnesses that are sought at this trial. There's no investigations made as to the veracity of the Levite's story. No attempt to hear any other sides of it. No, and (laughs) there is no seeking God. Nobody says, let's pray. (laughs) None of that, despite all the outward sense of outrage and justice and all of that. He accuses these leaders of Gibeah as the perpetrators of the crime, which is true. The Levite attributes to the Gibeahites an intention to kill him that's a little bit inaccurate. He doesn't mention the fact that they were really after him, not his concubine. 
He doesn't include his own role in the concubine's abuse. He doesn't tell the part where he shoves her out the door. He doesn't tell the part about how he kicks her, kind of to say, let's get going the next morning, but she's dead. Um, there's no mention of the other witness in the matter, the old man from Ephraim at whose house he's staying. There's, there's no mention of that guy. And he completely avoids the reason for why he's journeying in the first place, that he's gone to Bethlehem because his concubine has run away from him, and he's being in Gibeah because he's delayed on his travels, and the fact that he has actually trafficked his concubine and how she's left him and he's tried to pursue her. Um, the Levite's trying to take the high road of protecting his own security, isn't he? Those are all Abraham Cruvilla's points in his commentary on this text. Notice what the, the Levite says, I, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin. Notice the accusation is against Benjamin to spend the night, I and my concubine. The leaders of Gibeah, not just the ruffians, rose against me by night. They surrounded the house against me. They intended to kill me. They violated my concubine. She's dead. And I've given this signal by sending parts of her throughout the country. Why? Because Benjamin has committed abomination and outrage in Israel. And notice the response that he's seeking here in verse 7. Behold, that means take notice, you people of Israel. He's saying this sin isn't just against me, it's against you. All of you, there is a need for unanimity and unity here. Give your advice and counsel. Tell me what should be done. So now in verses 8 through 17, we see this unification of the tribes to fight against one tribe. Verse 8, all the people rose as one man. There's that phrase again, the unity, saying, none of us will go to his tent, none of us will return to his house. Now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We'll go up against it by lot. We'll take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel and a hundred of a thousand and a thousand of ten thousand to bring provisions for the people that when they come, they may pay, repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. There's that unity again. And the tribes of Israel sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin saying, what evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore, give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjaminites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword besides the inhabitants of Gibeah who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. Uh, a unification of the tribes to fight against this one tribe. Um, the tribes do unify over this injustice, don't they? We're not going to go home until this is satisfied, is what they say. We'll go up against Gibeah, and they've got a plan. Here's their plan. We'll take 10% of our human resources to provide the war resources. That's why they say 10 of 100, 100 of 1,000, 1,000, you know, and so on. We'll take 10% of our human resources to provide the war resources. 
And these war resources will be used by the tribes so they can defeat the tribe of Benjamin. So all the men of Israel gather against the city, united as one man. And in verses 12 to 14, there's an offer of peace to avoid civil war, but it's rejected. The tribes of Israel send men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin, and they go, look, there's an obvious evil here. Give up the men that have done this, these worthless fellows, literally sons of Belial, uh, that we may put them to death and purge the evil from Israel. And the battle lines, they reject this, and the battle lines are drawn. And the numbers are asymmetrical, aren't they? On the one side, 400,000 men of Israel, and the other side, 26,000 men of, of Benjamin. But they make sure to note that there's 700 guys there that are really elite troops. They're left-handed, and they're good with a sling. They can sling at a hair and not miss. That's the Benjaminites' secret weapon, which all of you left-handers can kind of go, yeah. What's happening here? Events are taking mastery over those that are seeking to control them. Have you ever had that happen to you? Where all of a sudden you're involved in an event and it just leads to one more thing and one more thing until pretty soon you look back, you go, how did we get here? I'm sure the guys in the trenches in World War I were thinking, how in the world did we get here? And the answer is a 19-year-old kid just so happened to be in the right place at the right time and, and killed Archduke Ferdinand. Events take mastery over those seeking to control them. Here's something else that comes out of this. It's sad. Uh, it's just part of human nature, though. What unites people is often a fight more than it is a mission. What unites is a fight more than a mission. Um, Israel had a mission to bring glory to God. That mission is lost here. This idea of come and see the glory of God and the people of Israel, that, psh, out the window. Everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. But boy, let there be some injustice. All of a sudden, everybody's involved and anxious and interested in unifying about a fight, not a mission, a fight. Now, sometimes painful action has to happen in order for, to avoid worse action. The offer of the tribes to Benjamin was a painful offer, wasn't it? Just give us up the bad guys, we'll put them to death, and we'll be done with this. Capital punishment for the perpetrators. But that would avoid worse things that happen later. The people of Benjamin do not see how events are going to spin out of their control. Verses 18 through 28. Then the people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? The Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the men of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. And the people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. 
But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening, and they inquired of the Lord, shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, go up against them. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day, and Benjamin went out against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days, and Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. These initial failures, there's two of them, isn't there? Uh, help us to look to the Lord. For the first time, verse 18, in this entire story, someone prays. <laughs> for the first time. Now, what they're praying for is success, which isn't exactly that great of a prayer. Oh, Lord, just bless what we're planning. It's not that necessarily a good prayer, but at least it's prayer. What they want is success. What they get is God's will. And God's will is that Judah would go up first, probably because the Levite and likely his concubine are from Bethlehem in Judah. Verses 19 to 21, the battle lines are drawn and the Benjaminites win the first skirmish. 22,000 Israelites are killed. I mean, Benjamin's only got 26,000 and they kill 22,000 Israelites. It's almost equal to the entire tribe of Benjamin. So they reform the battle lines, and this time they cry out, weeping before the Lord, and they want their success. And they pray, do we do this again? And the God says yes, so they attack again. And this time, 18,000 more of them die. Israel has now lost 40,000 men. Note that at this point, verses 26 to 28, that that leads to even more desire for intimacy with God. The people, the whole army, go up to Bethel. And you'd have to read the uh, book of Genesis to see in the patriarch stories what a prominent place Bethel has as a place for meeting God. And they weep and they sit before the Lord all day long fasting, and they offer the burnt and peace offerings which are prescribed in the book of Leviticus for drawing near to a holy God. And they inquire of the Lord at the Ark of the Covenant. You might ask the question, what in the world is the Ark of the Covenant doing there? The tabernacle is way up miles north in Shiloh. Why is the Ark down here at Bethel? And my best guess is because they think that by having the ark with them, they've got God in a box and they can control how God's going to behave. It's all a desire to be able to say in as subtle a way as possible, Lord, bless my plans rather than saying, God, we're completely submissive to you and your sovereignty. They inquire of the ark, at the ark of the covenant with Aaron, Aaron's grandson is the priest, which suggests, by the way, that not all of the book of Judges is written in chronological order. This story could have happened pretty early in the book of Judges. 
And they ask the question, do we do this one more time or not? And the Lord says, go tomorrow, I'll give them into your hand. What do we make of such an unusual section of Scripture? Well, first, failure does not always mean that you're going the wrong way. Sometimes we think uh, when we fail that that must mean we're out of God's will. Not necessarily so. Failure does not necessarily mean that you're going the wrong way. Sometimes what it means is that you've been going the wrong way for a very long time, and now that you're trying to go the right way, you're meeting with pain. I've seen that happen a lot of times with people who are new believers in Jesus. You know, they put their faith in Christ, and guess what? Their life absolutely gets worse. Why? Not because they're going the wrong way now, but because they had been going the wrong way for a very long time, and now they're finding that they're going, now that they're going the right way, they're meeting with the pain of having gone the wrong way. In verses 29 to 48, we have the utter defeat of Benjamin. It's told in two versions, verses 29 to 36, and then verse 36 through 48. I won't read these versions. Let me summarize them for you. Uh, in version 1, the battle goes very much like the battle at Ai in Joshua, which also is a place very near here. Uh, they engage in the battle with a few retreating, Israel does, to get the enemy to be drawn out of the city of Gibeah, and then they bring in encircling forces. In verse 34, Benjamin did not know that the disaster was close upon them. It says, there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men of all Israel. The battle was hard, but the Benjaminites did not know that disaster was upon them, and the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel, and the people of Israel destroyed 25,100 men of Benjamin that day, all these were men who drew the sword, so the people of Benjamin saw that they were defeated. In the second version of the telling of this story, there's a trust on the part of Israel in the men assigned to the ambush. Look at verse 36, the men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. What they did was they came out to battle. When the Benjaminites came out, they ran away, retreating like they were defeated before, only they had some people behind Gibeah to come into the city and start it on fire. And when Benjamin see, uh, when, when the people that are running away see the smoke from the city, they turn and they attack the Benjaminites. And the Benjaminites go, oh no. Our city's burning, there's guys coming out against us, and these guys, they were just fake retreating, they aren't really retreating, now they're coming to attack us, we're done. They know they're done for, look at verse 40, when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamin's lights looked behind them, behold, the whole of the city went up in smoke to heaven, the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. In verse 42, the Benjaminites run in the direction of the wilderness, which is always a place to run for hiding and for protection. Um, let me back up here to my one map. So what's happening is 
they're, they're fleeing Gibeah. There's only a few certain ways that you can get out here. I, I spent quite a bit of time out in this wilderness, and it's, it's tough for goats to walk around there, let alone people. And so they end up making their way up here. There's about 600 guys that are holed up here of Benjamin on their attempt to escape from the disaster that is upon them. Uh, 18,000, verse 44, die in the ambush. Verse 45, another 5,000 die en route to the wilderness. And another 2,000 die on this road to Gedom. In all, 25,000. Verse 46, all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled toward the wilderness to the rock of Ramon and remained at the rock of Ramon four months. In verse 48, we see the sad conclusion. Benjamin is struck by the men of Israel at the edge of the sword, the city, men, and beasts, and all that they found, and this last sentence, and all the towns that they found, they, the Israelites, set on fire. What do we make of a disgusting story like this. Well, first of all, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. This, friends, is the consequence of where we're headed as a culture. Where we're headed as a world culture is to conflagration, cataclysm, lots of people dying if there isn't some awakening that takes place. I am convinced that the only hope that we have in this world and for our nation is a third great awakening. That's one lesson that I think we should take from this, the utter consequences of what life is like when everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Here's a question that you might want to ponder. Why does the Lord allow Israel to be defeated the first two times in a cause that God himself favors? He told them to go. And twice they get beat, 22,000 die, 18,000 die. Why does God allow Israel to be defeated in a cause that he himself favors? The answer, of course, is known only to his wise counsel, but I will speculate that it is to make his glory known and the humility of his people real. I believe that the Apostle Paul actually had this in mind this event in mind when he wrote the letter to Rome and the letter to Philippi where he mentions that he, the Apostle Paul, belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. Hear Paul's words first from Romans 11 and then from Philippians 3. Romans 11 verse 1, I ask then, Paul says, has God rejected his people? By no means. Is God completely done even though there's disaster and the tribe of Benjamin is almost wiped out? Nope. <laughs> Paul says, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant 
chosen by grace, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would be no longer grace. There are moments here where disaster was upon Israel. It was in doubt as to whether one of the tribes would actually survive. And there have been events in the history of the world, World War I being one of them, where it was doubtful what's going to happen to our world. And there are going to be moments perhaps yet in our lifetimes where we will ask that question, is human civilization going to survive this? (laughs) And we answer, God alone keeps the world from spinning out of control. Philippians chapter 3, the second place where Paul mentions that he's of the tribe of Benjamin. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the very fact that they had been uh, rescued and delivered is why the apostle to the Gentiles even exists, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. See, no longer doing what is right in my own eyes, Paul says, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for His sake. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Why does God allow Israel to be defeated in a cause that He Himself favors? It may just be to reveal His glory in being absolutely in control of all things. What does this story say about the mission of Israel to put the glory of God on display? Well, they lost sight of their mission, didn't they? Their mission was to come and see. That is, to be the people of God and have the world come to see them and go, wow, your God's the only God, we want to worship Him too. That was their mission, come and see. The mission of the church is go and tell, right? Go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations. Why was Israel more ready to fight each other than it was to reveal the glory of God? Why is the church more interested all too often in gossipy church fights than it is the Great Commission? Why do controversy and debate move people to action more than the pursuit of God and the mission that He's given us to make Jesus known? Why does that happen? It is because We try to do what's right in our own eyes more often 
then we are taken, absolutely enraptured, that we are God's people and that we can know Him. There's good, there's bad, and there's ugly here with the tribe of Benjamin, isn't there? The good, they were the favored son of Jacob. Deuteronomy 33 says of Benjamin, he said, The beloved of the Lord dwells in safety. The high God surrounds him all day long and dwells between his shoulders. Well, that's been thrown into a trash can in terms of their attitudes and their hearts, hasn't it? Uh, According to rabbinic tradition, the tribe of Benjamin was the first to enter the Red Sea. They joined with Judah in following David, uh, the Davidic dynasty, after Solomon's kingdom was split. They joined with Judah. Um, They were the smallest tribe. King Saul is from Benjamin, from Gibeah. That's the bad part, right? And the ugly rebellion at Gibeah, the civil war, what we're going to see next week and how, according to using video game technology, how does the tribe of Benjamin respawn? Well, we'll find that out next week, and it's just as sad, just as sad a story. They're near extermination, but God saves them despite themselves. The sin of a few can lead to the suffering of many. God alone keeps this world from spinning out of control. And did you know that Jesus came into this world? Oh, we can look at a chapter like this and we go, well, that's, that's other people. No, no, no. That's humanity. That's you. That's me. And Jesus came into this world world, becoming one of us, not to condemn us, but to save us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today we pause to say we are like the people of Israel, the people of Benjamin, more than we want to admit we're like them. We get unified over a fight rather than a mission. We seek our own will and desire, and then we have the audacity to pray to say, God, bless our plans. Oh, Lord, forgive us for the ways in which we have sinned in these ways. Lord, help us to see your great grace here. You keep the world from spinning out of control, and you have sent your Son, our Savior Jesus, the God-man who came to this world, not to condemn us, though we certainly deserved it every bit as much as the people of Gibeah deserved what they got, every bit as much as the people of Israel deserved what they got, or the tribe of Benjamin deserved what they got. We deserve death, condemnation, but you, Jesus, came to rescue us from the coming wrath. Oh, Lord, we put a a deep awareness of our position 
with thanksgiving in our hearts that you have saved us. And Lord, for anyone who's never put their faith in Jesus right here now in this room or on live stream, I pray that they would see that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It is in putting our faith in him that we are rescued. It is not in slapping a a prayer upward to say, oh God, bless my plans, but rather that we would say, Lord, for your glory I live. Lord, I'm a broken sinner. I'm in need of a Savior. Jesus died for me. I trust him now to forgive me of my sin. Please give me the eternal life you promised me in the Bible. And Lord, may we have a zeal of unity to go and tell the world that the Father has sent the Son. In Jesus' name. Amen.